Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 34. We're going to discuss a U.S. Supreme Court case called Reynolds v. Sims. was decided in 1964 with a U.S. Supreme Court in an 8-1 decision. said that state legislative districts for general assemblies or state legislatures have to be apportioned by roughly equal population and not by geography like the U.S. Senate is. So states can't do it by county or any other geographic area, but the U.S. Senate obviously can. Every state gets two senators. So why can't states model their legislatures after the federal legislature? How did the Supreme Court reach that conclusion? We'll tell you. So this case was in 1964. There's a lot going on in the legal landscape that year. The case we discussed last week, episode 33, Jacob Ellis versus Ohio, dealing with obscenity and the First Amendment and what is protected and what's not, also 64. Obviously, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed by LBJ, and we discussed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in particular in episode 31, again, just a couple of weeks ago, because the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear three cases, which we discussed in that episode 31. And the issue is going to be, does the Civil Rights Act's prohibition on discrimination based on sex, does that include sexual identity? Can you discriminate based on someone's heterosexuality versus homosexuality? Or if someone identifies as a transgender person, Supreme Court will hear those cases in 2020. Also in 1964, a constitutional amendment was ratified, the 24th Amendment, which banned poll taxes. You could no longer be required to pay anything in order to vote. And in a non-legal happening, the Beatles held the top five positions, one, two, three, four, five, on the yearly Billboard Top 40 singles chart. They were pretty big. So I was looking at things that went on in 1964, and I found this as well, about how much things cost. The average cost of a new house in 1964 was $13,050. That's low, right? But the average Average income per year was $6,000. Gas was 30 cents a gallon. A new car, average cost, $3,500. Loaf of bread was 21 cents. Postage stamp, 5 cents. That's 10 times that now. Average monthly rent was $115, and a ticket to the movies was $1.25. Also about 10 times that now. So why are price and income so much higher now? In 2019, some 50 years later, a lot of you will know this, but it's because of the debasement of currency by the federal government, the Federal Reserve Bank. Read The Creature from Jekyll Island about the start of the Federal Reserve Bank for a whole lot of information about monetary policy and the Fed. The book is out of print because I went to look at it, and on Amazon, a hardcover copy is $125. There's only one in stock when I look today. You can get a paperback for $34, but you can get a CD for $18.99. I did not see it available on uh, an e-reader, Kindle or whatever. But I digress. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Follow us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp, and on Facebook slash Blue Carp. My blog is bluecarp.com, and check out the Facebook page for this podcast, which you'll find at The Law with D.K. Williams. Uh, recommend it on that Facebook page, if you would. Rate it, if you would. Share, help spread the word, that type of thing. And if you would like to keep this podcast going, help it out, you can donate at paypal.me slash the law, D.K. Williams, all put together. And that link will be in the show notes. So I've had this case on my list of cases to discuss for a while. So decades ago, when I first heard about it, and this issue was brought up to me, my initial response was, well, why, yeah, why, why can't states just model themselves after the United States Congress, have one branch of the bicameral legislature be based on population and the other one based on a geographical unit, like a county, right? And that was before I read the case. And you guys know what I say about reading cases. Your opinion isn't worth much unless you've read the case. 
So if the U.S. government's built that way, it would make sense that some states might want to do that. Why can't states do it? Actually, there is a difference between the two. That makes sense once I read about it. And I think it'll make sense to a lot of you if you haven't already figured it out or if you don't already know. But we're going to discuss that. The reason I decided to do it this week, there was a tweet that got me to revisit this case just a couple days ago. It was a tweet from the 18th Judicial District District Attorney here in Colorado, which is Arapahoe and Douglas County and Elbert, which are mostly Denver suburbs. The guy's name is George Brockler. He ran for governor in 2016, did not get the GOP nomination, but he's still the DA. Brockler's most famous for being the elected DA who insisted on seeking the death penalty after the Aurora shooter, and I shall not mention his name, Aurora shooter in the theater, murdered 12 people, injured 70 more, and the DA, Brockler, rejected the defendant's offer to plead guilty and be sentenced to lifetime without parole. He would never see a free day again in his life. No chance he'd ever be free. Brockler wanted the death penalty. He was gung-ho about getting the death penalty on this guy. So he spent millions and millions of taxpayers' dollars to try the case, go through the sentencing process, which is very long and elaborate in a death penalty case, try to get the death penalty. He did not get it. He failed to get the death penalty. The defendant was sentenced to the rest of his life in jail, which is exactly the result he could have gotten without the expense and his ultimate failure to get the death penalty on a mass murderer. So he's largely famous for failing to get the death penalty on a guy who murdered 16 people. And you know my feelings on the death penalty. We discussed that issue in episode 16, Furman versus Georgia. It is constitutional, but it's bad policy. And as a fact, it just seems to be ending because juries aren't going to give that guy death penalty who killed 16 people and injured 70 more. It's not going to happen. If the Aurora shooting case doesn't show that, nothing will. I think legislatures should end it, but not the courts. So check out episode 16, Furman v. Georgia, or more for more about that. But here was a tweet from May 4th from George Brockler here in Colorado. Quote, post-session, he means post-legislative session, our legislature is out now. We should discuss why taxpayers fund two legislative bodies whose representation is purely population-driven. How different would the Colorado legislature be if we reform the legislature by having a legislator per county in one of the houses? Of course, after he tweeted that, there was a respectful and sincere discussion. Just kidding. It's social media. The discussion was smarmy, condescending. A lot of it was wrong. A lot of name callings. But it was pointed out, and George acknowledged it, that the Supreme Court has declared that states can't do that. So it wouldn't be a very long conversation once we start discussing if we want to do that. And that brings us to this week's case, Reynolds versus Sims, who are the named participants Sims is M.O. Sims. We just get his or her initials. First name plaintiff. He's one of several voters who lived in a state legislative district in Jefferson County, Alabama. Jefferson County is home to Birmingham, a big city. Jefferson County is populous and the plaintiffs, including Sims, lived there. It said their vote was diluted because of the population disparity in the districts they lived in that all got the same representation. Despite the most extreme case, the plaintiff's district had 41 times as much population as a very small rural district, but they got the same representation in the state legislature. So that's what motivated this case. Reynolds isn't even Reynolds the name defendant isn't even named in the Supreme Court case beyond the title of the case. Ballotpedia, Wikipedia referred to him as a judge, but that's all I can find. He must have been a judge who was named as a procedural matter, probably an Alabama lower level court judge, I'm not sure, just to get the case filed. There has to be a defendant in a case, and sometimes we'll see governors or heads of a state department or even the federal government department named as defendants pretty frequently, but whoever Reynolds was, that was why he's on the lawsuit. He was standing in for the state of Alabama or the 
state legislature. So the Supreme Court tally was eight to one in favor of the plaintiffs. Supreme Court said that their rights to equal protection under the law was violated by that huge disparity in districts. And they say that you're going to have to have districts that are roughly proportionate. It's just got to be roughly the same. So the plaintiffs won. Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote the opinion. Warren was nominated in 1953, nominated by Eisenhower. Before that, he was a Republican governor of California. So it's another Republican restricting the authority of the states. He got his law degree at Berkeley, and you know I like to mention that to show we used to have a more diverse grouping of U.S. Supreme Court justices. Now they're almost all Ivy League, almost all Harvard. Joining Warren, in the opinion, was Hugo Black. He was nominated by FDR in 1937, which was 27 years before this case. So I'm just showing how long these guys stay in the bench. Hugo Black got his law degree at the University of Alabama. Good diversity. I like that. He's not a member of that Ivy League elite. William Douglas, also in the majority. Another FDR appointment in 39. Went to Columbia Law. Ivy League intelligentsia. Tom C. Clark also joined the majority. He was nominated by Truman in 49, but he got his law degree at the University of Texas at Austin. So good for that diversity. He wrote separately, but concurred in the judgment. William Brennan also joined the majority, nominated by Ike in 56. Went to Harvard, part of that Ivy League elite. Potter Stewart joined the majority. We discussed him last week. He is famous for the phrase, I know it when I see it, in his Jacob Bellis concurring opinion. Episode 33, just last week. He was nominated by Eisenhower in 58. He also wrote separately and concurred, but he's in the majority. Byron White, a little bit more about him because I've mentioned him a couple times. He was nominated by JFK in 62, so just a couple years before this case was decided in 64. What's interesting about White is that he played football at University of Colorado. He was an All-American running back. He was drafted in the first round of the NFL in 1938. The team at that point was called the Pittsburgh Pirates. They became the Steelers later. His rookie year, he led the league in rushing. This is kind of cool for a guy that went on to become a Supreme Court justice, right? His nickname is Wizard. Only played one year in the NFL right out of college. He then went on to Oxford to do his Rhodes Scholarship. Then he went to Yale Law. And then in the middle of Yale Law School, he went back to the NFL. Played two more years in 40 and 41 with the Detroit Lions. So that's kind of cool. Number eight in the 8-1 to majority was Arthur Goldberg, nominated by LBJ, and he went to Northwestern Law School. The dissent, the lone dissent in this case, was John Marshall Harlan II. Harlan was nominated by Ike in 55 and went to New York Law School. And that's not New York University Law School. It's different. So now you know that. I didn't know that either. New York Law School is one thing. New York University Law School, something else. So let's hit the dissent. Harlan's dissent before we get into the majority opinion. Harlan was applying an originalist interpretation of the 14th Amendment, which in his opinion had not been meant to protect voting rights. He suggested that the court in this case was intruding on federalism principles that should have allowed the states to control their local matters, their local elections. He was the only one. The other guys didn't buy it. And we'll get into what the majority said. The facts from Oyez, the link is in the notes because I want you guys to read these cases or I encourage you to. So in 1961, M.O. Sims, the name plaintiff, other voters from this county in Alabama, Jefferson County, challenged the apportionment of the state legislature. The lines dividing the electoral districts had resulted in a dramatic population discrepancy among the districts. Now, the state constitution of Alabama required at least one representative per county and senatorial district. However, the district in Jefferson County contained 41 times as many eligible voters as those in another district of the state. Sims and the other plaintiffs argued that this lack of proportionality prevented them from effectively participating 
in a Republican form of government. Rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment were violated. The court's analysis, they spent a lot of time discussing disproportionate state legislative districts in Alabama and throughout the country, because they mentioned that there were several other states that had this basic issue, a similar issue about the legislatures in states and their proportionate representation or their lack of it. So the Supreme Court says in a million different ways that diluting a vote can be as bad as denying a vote. That's a recurring major theme in their opinion. Now, the Alabama district plan was not just straight up each county gets one senator and the House of Reps will be divided up into equally populous districts. It's not like that. It was more convoluted. But let's keep it simple for discussion purposes. They had some districts with very few people in them and some with a whole bunch of people in them and they all got the same representation. So Jefferson County had over 600,000 people in it with one senator and Loundis County, L-O-W-N-D-E-S, had just over 15,000 people in it. So that's a big discrepancy. That's the 40 to 1 ratio. So the complaint alleged a deprivation of rights uh, under the Alabama Constitution and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And the Alabama Constitution said that the Alabama legislature was required to reproportion the districts every 10 years following the census. So the last time they had divvied up the state districts in Alabama was in 1900. Their own constitution says they have to redo it every 10 years, but they never did. And now we're in 64. So they haven't done it for six decades. They missed six deadlines, right? They're just ignoring it in essence. That's not in dispute. Alabama courts acknowledge this failure of the legislature to reapportion their districts as the, their state constitution required. But the Alabama court said they couldn't do anything about it, that it was a legislative decision. So the plaintiffs filed in federal court. U.S. Supreme Court says in this case, while the Alabama Supreme Court had found that the legislature had not complied with the state constitution in failing to reapportion according to population decennially every 10 years, that court, Alabama state court, had nevertheless indicated that it would not interfere with matters of legislative reapportionment. Yeah, that seems kind of odd to me, but that's what happened. And a lot of this decision at the Supreme Court level and the district court level dealt with what's going to happen with the elections until it all gets sorted out. And the Alabama legislature had proposed two different alternatives and they discussed both of those. They ultimately reject both of them. So those specific discussions don't really have much to do with how the precedent affects us today. So I'm going to focus on that. So as noted by the Supreme Court, the district court, the federal district court, held that the inequality of the existing representation in the Alabama legislature violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Since population growth and shifts, people moving around, had converted the 1901 scheme as perpetuated some 60 years later because they hadn't redone it into, quote, an invidiously discriminatory plan completely lacking in rationality, end quote. I love when the court says stuff like that because they're pointing out the government acting irrationally, but of course the government does stuff like that all the time. It just doesn't always infringe upon a constitutional right, or allegedly does, or allegedly does not. And one of the arguments Alabama used to defend their districts was that the federal government could do it. They do it with the U.S. Senate. So why can't they? And that was a major argument back here at the time. Like I said, that was what my first impression was. It's got to be constitutional because the U.S. Senate is proportioned that way without regard to population. And by way of comparison, as of today in the U.S. Senate, Wyoming gets two senators, obviously, and they've got almost 600,000 people in the entire state. California has almost 40 million, and that's almost a 70 to 1 ratio. Both get two senators. So the U.S. Congress can do that. Why can't states? Why doesn't that compare? Hold up. Some of you may see that immediately. Some of you may not. I had to think about it for a while. The Supreme Court says on that issue, noting that the only conceivable rationalization of the senatorial apportionment scheme of Alabama is that it was based on equal representation of political subdivisions within the state, like counties, and is thus analogous to the federal Senate. The district court rejected the analogy on the ground that Alabama counties are merely involuntary political units of the state created by statute to aid in the administration of state government. Stay with me. The analogy can 
not survive the most superficial examination into the history of the requirement of the federal constitution, this is the Supreme Court, and the diametrically opposing history of the requirement of the Alabama constitution, that representation shall be based on population, nor can it survive a comparison of the different political natures of states and counties. Okay, in short, the way they say that without all the legalese, states at the time the constitution was ratified, states were originally independent and sovereign entities. Counties have never been that. Counties are, in fact, political subdivisions of the state itself. And the only way the original 13 colonies, they were sovereign states after the revolution, would have agreed to the creation of the federal government at all was that if each wholly independent and sovereign state got equal representation in the U.S. Senate. So the history embodied in the U.S. Constitution and the formation of the U.S. Senate doesn't apply to a state's political subdivisions of counties or whatever they might be. Counties didn't come together and form their own state government. It's the opposite of what the federal government did. The states created the counties, but the federal government did not create the states, at least not originally. So while U.S. states should not be treated like mere political subdivisions of the federal government, counties are actually mere political subdivisions of the state. One thing I noted that, at least in 64, a good thing about the Alabama legislature is that they only meet every other year, which Colorado did the same setup. Nobody's safe when they're in session. The Colorado General Assembly does meet every year, but at least they only meet for about four months. So given the discussion of the facts so far, the Supreme Court says, undeniably, the Constitution of the United States protects the right of all qualified citizens to vote, in state as well as in federal elections. A consistent line of decisions by this court in cases involving attempts to deny or restrict the right of suffrage has made this indelibly clear. They love using big words. It has been repeatedly recognized that all qualified voters have a constitutionally protected right to vote and to have their votes counted. Okay, nothing unusual yet or particularly noteworthy. They go on. The right of suffrage can be denied by a debasement or dilution of the weight of a citizen's vote just as effectively as by wholly prohibiting the free exercise of the franchise. So like I mentioned earlier, this is a recurring theme. Diluting a vote, making it worth less than others, the Supreme Court is saying can be just as bad as denying it completely. So you can see where they're going with this, at least the majority, the 8-1 majority. So by way of comparison, they discussed another Supreme Court case out of Georgia and applied it to this one, the Alabama case. They say, how then can one person be given twice or 10 times the voting power of another person in a statewide election merely because he lives in a a rural district or because he lives in the smallest rural county. Once the geographical unit for which a representative is to be chosen is designated, all who participate in the election are to have an equal vote whatever their race, whatever their sex, whatever their occupation, whatever their income, and wherever their home may be in that geographical unit. This is required by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now remember, Harlan in the dissent said it wasn't, but he's the only one. The majority goes on. The concept of we the people under the Constitution visualizes no preferred class of voters, but equality among those who meet the basic qualifications. The idea that every voter is equal to every other voter in his state when he casts his ballot in favor of one of several competing candidates, underlies many of our decisions. So you can see where they're going. And remember, the 14th Amendment specifically applies to the states. That was the entire point. States could not deny people in their state the equal protection. They couldn't treat different people differently. They couldn't discriminate against black people. So the composition of the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College, which is a function of the U.S. Senate, are spelled out in the U.S. Constitution. So I don't see this one-person, one-vote concept being used in court to challenge either because they're separately allowed for in the Constitution for specifically historical reasons. Now, the national popular vote, of course, is an attempt to get enough 
enough states to voluntarily give up their electoral college votes without having to amend the Constitution or somehow sue to overturn the electoral college itself, and they're not going to get a constitutional amendment. Certainly not anytime soon. But if the national popular vote ever gets enough states to pass it, and Colorado just did this past legislative session, if it becomes effective, it will undoubtedly be challenged. Interstate compact, which is the idea behind all these different states having their legislatures say we'll do this once we get a certain number of states. Basically, once enough states pass it, that's when it will take effect. But interstate compacts, by their own definition in the Constitution, must be approved by Congress. So I don't see that happening. But the NPV, the National Popular Vote Advocates, got some argument that says it doesn't apply to them. That's as far as into the weeds as I've gotten on that topic. But as it relates to this case, Reynolds versus Sims, this holding only applies to state legislatures by its terms. I don't think anybody can take this one person, one vote concept, which they hammer on here, and apply it to the U.S. Senate or to the Electoral College. This is specifically and only to states. And I signed the, the petition in Colorado to get the state legislature's approval of the national popular vote or Colorado's participation in this scheme. I signed it to put that in a statewide initiative to overturn what the legislature just did. I hope it gets on the ballot and I hope it passes because states are independent sovereign entities and they are not like counties. They are not mere political subdivisions of the federal government. And any effort to make states more like political subdivisions is misguided and a bad idea. The notion that I see over and over again that democracy by itself is a noble goal is wrong. It's misplaced. Our constitution is specifically designed to not be a straight democracy. And no reasonable person, not even the people advocating for the MPV, the national popular vote, they don't believe in a straight democracy either, although they might use language that makes it seem like they do. And I'll prove nobody believes in it. Because in a straight democracy, the majority could ban books. In a straight democracy, the majority could close disfavored religious organizations. They could close churches. In a straight democracy, the majority could exile certain demographics out of the country. But we can't do that. And for good reason, no reasonable person, not even the most ardent supporters of this national popular vote, want us to be able to do any of those things. They don't want democracy to do those things. So they know, and I think all reasonable people realize when faced with the facts about this, I mean, it's not a difficult concept to grasp that a straight democracy, the majority can tell the minority anything at all, and the power of the government will be behind them. So democracy by itself is not a good goal, but they pretend that it is. And thankfully, our Constitution doesn't allow for any of these things. Our Constitution prohibits them. Thank God it does. So when this comes up, let's dispose of this democracy is a noble goal. We just proved it is not. Because if you think democracy by itself is noble, then you think the majority should be able to ban certain churches, should be able to close them down. Because that's what democracy is. Majority rules. One person, one vote. 51 out of 100. Say anybody found reading Harry Potter or the Bible or the Quran or whatever? If 51 out of 100 say doing that is illegal or we're going to put you in jail for it, that's democracy. It's a horrible idea. That's why we don't have one. And that's why the U.S. Constitution was set up the way it was. So I get it. The national popular vote people have other arguments. Let's not let them get away with just assuming democracy by itself is a good idea. It's not. So back to the Supreme Court in this Reynolds v. Sims case. Here's the money shot, or one of them. The conception of political equality from the Declaration of Independence to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to the 15th, 17th, and 19th Amendments can mean only one thing, one person, one vote. 
And that's what they apply to these state legislatures. Now, what they leave unsaid is one person, one vote, except in the U.S. Senate, where it doesn't mean that at all. And you notice their list of documents that support their conclusion, one person, one vote, leaves out the body of the Constitution. It mentions some amendments, but it leaves out the body of it where it specifically allows for it in the U.S. Senate. Now, the Supreme Court had an earlier case where they had ruled that congressional districts for the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives, which are drawn up by state legislators, had to be based on proportional representation. So that just applied to congressional districts. It didn't apply to state legislative districts, but they're making the same argument. They're coming to the same conclusion as they did then over Harlan's dissent. So in that case, the Supreme Court said the constitutional prescription for election of members of the House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress, by the people construed in its historical context means that as nearly as practicable, one man's vote in a congressional election is to be worth as much as another's. We, the Supreme Court, further stated it would defeat the principle solemnly embodied in the great compromise, equal representation in the House for equal numbers of people. For us to hold that within the states, legislatures may draw the lines of congressional districts in such a way as to give some voters a greater voice in choosing a congressman than others. So that's them talking about it in congressional districts, and they're coming to the same conclusions here for states. Now, at least the Supreme Court here mentions the Great Compromise, but they didn't mention that part of that was that each state was going to get two senators regardless of how big they were. The Great Compromise did create the Congress with equal representation, but it also created the Senate where you didn't have that. That's the entire point, and that's why it's a Great Compromise. The Supreme Court went on here in Reynolds v. Sims. We found further, in a different case, that our Constitution's plain objective was that of making each Equal representation for equal numbers of people, the fundamental goal. That's the Supreme Court. But that's not true because the U.S. Senate doesn't do that. They're stretching that point a little too far. It's like they're saying all these things about one person, one vote with this huge asterisk over here. Well, except for this part where they specifically allow for it in the U.S. Senate. So just keep that asterisk over here. Don't look at that while we talk about all this stuff. doesn't mean they still can't come to the same conclusion. They can't. I just think that some of these broad statements, like the fundamental goal is one person, one vote, that doesn't hold up. Now, in face of the U.S. Senate. Later, the Supreme Court says, in this case, Reynolds v. Sims, this is something that you hear a lot of people say now or have the same sentiment, quote, legislators represent people, not trees or acres. Fair enough. But again, there's that asterisk over here, except for the U.S. Senate. But as we discussed, the history of the U.S. Senate and the nature of state representation in Congress versus county representation in a state legislature are very different. And the Supreme Court gets a little repetitive on this point. Again, it says, the Equal Protection Clause guarantees the opportunity for equal participation by all voters in the election of state legislators. Of course, they're very careful here to say state legislators because it doesn't apply to federal. They go on, the fact that an individual lives here or there is not a legitimate reason for overweighting or diluting the efficacy of his vote. Again, they're making that's another blanket statement with a big asterisk. None of this applies to the U.S. Senate. And we talked about how Wyoming and California are massively different in population. And a recurring theme that I come back to on these things is the power of the United States Congress would not be such a big deal if the Supreme Court had not expanded federal powers beyond the enumerated powers to intrude into the private growth of even a plant grown on one's property, like we talked about with the medical marijuana case. Alas, the Supreme Court did sanction that and started with Rickard v. Filburn, another one we've talked about. So if the Supreme Court had limited the federal government to its actual limited enumerated powers, all this power of the Congress wouldn't be as big a deal. 
but it is. Eventually, we get to the conclusion, eight to one opinion. We hold that as a basic constitutional standard, the Equal Protection Clause requires that the seats in both houses of a bicameral state legislature must be apportioned on a population basis. They talk about the federal analogy, as we've mentioned, if the U.S. Senate can do it, how come state legislators can't? And the Supreme Court, in a footnote, quotes Thomas Jefferson. And it's an interesting quotation. This is it. Thomas Jefferson repeatedly denounced the inequality of representation. This is from the footnote, not to Thomas Jefferson's quote yet. He denounced the inequality of representation provided for under the 1776 Virginia Constitution and frequently proposed changing the Virginia State Constitution to provide that both houses be apportioned on the basis of population. In 1816, he wrote that a government is Republican in proportion as every member composing it has his equal voice in the direction of its concern. Then he wrote, later in another time, Thomas Jefferson said, equal representation is so fundamental a principle in a true republic that no prejudice can justify its violation because the prejudices themselves cannot be justified. The Supreme Court might be stretching the meaning of that a little bit, but the part about him criticizing the Virginia legislature seems to be legit. And they want to make this very clear again. The Supreme Court says states can't do what the federal government does. They wrote, the system of representation in the two houses of the federal Congress is one ingrained in our Constitution as part of the law of the land. It is one conceived out of compromise and concession indispensable to the establishment of our federal republic. Arising from unique historical circumstances, it is based on the consideration that, in establishing our type of federalism, a group of formerly independent states bound themselves together under one national government. At the time of the inception of the system of representation in the Federal Congress, a compromise between the larger and smaller states on this matter averted a deadlock in the Constitutional Convention, which had threatened to abort the birth of our nation. So, none of that history, none of those facts apply to state legislators. They only apply to the U.S. Congress. The Supreme Court does go on to mention the Electoral College because it is a function of senatorial numbers. Because, as you know, the Electoral College, each state gets the number of electoral votes. That is the number of U.S. representatives they have, which is based on population, plus their two senators. So, that means that Wyoming does have a disproportionate impact on the election of the United States president compared to California. But again, established that democracy for democracy's sake is not a good idea. So the Supreme Court, in this case, Reynolds v. Sims, discusses the Electoral College. Quote, We think the analogies to the Electoral College, to districting and redistricting, and to other phases of the problems of representation in state or federal legislatures or conventions are inapposite. They're not the same thing. The inclusion of the Electoral College in the Constitution as the result of specific historical concerns validated the collegiate principle despite its inherent numerical inequality, but implied nothing about the use of an analogous system by a state in a statewide election. They continue, political subdivisions of states, counties, cities, or whatever, never were and never have been considered as sovereign entities. That's the Supreme Court. That's correct. They never have been. Supreme Court goes on, the relationship of the states to the federal government could hardly be less analogous to counties in a state. And that's right. Therefore, the Supreme Court says, we necessarily hold that the Equal Protection Clause requires both houses of a state legislature to be apportioned on a population basis. So that's the conclusion, and you can see how they got there. So I'm sorry, George Brockler and everybody else talking about trying to give counties representation like states have at the U.S. Congress. It's not going to happen. So Kit Carson County in Colorado is not going to have the same number of 
senators as Denver. So I hope that clears some of that up and makes some sense. Whether or not you agree with it, you might agree with the dissent in Justice Harlan, but that's how it happened. And it does make sense, even if you don't agree with the application of it. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 34, Reynolds versus Sims. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Let me know what you think. Twitter at BlueCarp, Facebook.com slash BlueCarp is my personal account, and the Facebook page for this podcast, The Law with D.K. Williams. Recommend and rate on the Facebook page if you would. That would be helpful to help us spread the message. And if you'd like to help keep the podcast going, you can donate at paypal.me slash the law dk williams thank you again for listening we'll be back next week and remember government's not a tool of liberation it's a tool of oppression <laughs>